You're listening to the Bible for Normal People, the only God-ordained podcast on the internet. I'm Pete Enns. And I'm Jared Bias. Well, before we get started today, we just wanted to take a minute to share some personal information about where you might find us over the next couple of months. Yeah, and for those of you who think I'm just a lazy oaf, I do things, mm-hmm. including teaching. But also, this fall, in September, actually, I'm going to be at the Palmer Seminary Science and Religion Symposium. This is connected with Eastern University. And that's September 24th from 9 to 5 in McGinnis Hall. And the symposium will explore the question, what does it mean to be human? And I'll be doing some talking about evolution and whatnot. And, you know, if you can't make it, we live in a digital age where live streaming is almost automatic. So this symposium will be live streamed and recorded for future viewing. And you can get more information and sign up at palmerseminary.edu front slash science. In addition to that, Pete will also be at Theology Beer Camp which is October 13th to the 15th in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. And it's hosted by our good friend Trip Fuller of the Homebrewed Christianity Podcast. And so it's, you know, think of it like a combination between youth camp and theology seminar (laughs) with probably between 15 and 20 of maybe your favorite theology. I mean, hopefully we're number one in your hearts and Mm -hmm. minds. That goes without saying, but... But if you happen to listen to other non-God-ordained podcasts around theology and religion, those hosts might be there as well, because it's going to be a lot of fun, a lot of people. So if you want to come hang out, you can use the code NORMALHUMAN for $50 off your admission price, and you can sign up at homebrewedchristianity.lpages.co front slash TBC22. Unfortunately, I will not be at Theology Beer Camp because we had to divide and conquer. I am going to be at Evolving Faith. So that'll be October 14th and 15th. It's a live virtual conference. So you could actually go to Theology Beer Camp. You could do both. And stream it from there if you wanted. I have to yes. be physically somewhere to, to be do there, the recording, but other possible. people can do it. So go to evolvingfaith.com front slash conference. All right, let's get to the episode. Hello, everybody. Welcome to this episode of the podcast. Our topic today is how scientists study religion, and our guest is Jonathan Jong. And strap yourselves in, because he's got a lot of jobs. This is deep. He's a research fellow and assistant professor at Coventry University Center for Trust, Peace, and Social Relations, attached to the Institute for Cognitive and Evolutionary Anthropology at Oxford, as well as the Ian Ramsey Center for Science and Religion at Oxford. He's an associate priest at an Oxford college. He's also, we hear in the episode, he's a local parish priest for some rural uh, parishes like in the Church of England. Four towns or oh something. Oh my goodness gracious. And three churches or parishes. But he also and, has a book coming out at some point in the future. You know how academics, I don't know when it'll come out, but it's called The God Investigators, How Scientists Study Religion, which is what we're talking about today. Right, and this is a deep episode. It is a deep episode. So we wanted to have a little disclaimer here to say we try to make things for normal people, but when you're talking about the evolutionary psychology of religion and the cognitive science of religion, you, you know it's it's going to be hard to break it down into really simple concepts. I think he did about as good as you could possibly do. That's just it. You know, there are a lot of weird things you could read that's like, I don't even know what this guy's talking about. But. What I loved about it, though, is sometimes people talk in using big words to cover over things that could be simplified, but these just 
are very important, substantial topics that need attention. They yeah. do. We do need to break these down and talk about them more and more because it's all very important stuff. In my, you know, my assumption is for the 21st century of Christianity, these are going to be really important topics. Yes, exactly. For the future, how we think about the nature of faith and things like that. And so, you know, I like to be reminded of the kind of like mental attention the study of God and religion actually requires once you start getting into the weeds. If you're not interested in the weeds, pull back and just let the breeze flow and there's no judgment there. That's fine. But for people, and we suspect this is our listeners, you know, you're looking for ways of thinking about things that are different. And I think there are things that happened in this episode that I think will generate that kind of like, oh my, okay, uh, that sounds right to me. I never thought of it that way before. Absolutely. All right, let's get into it. Now, when it comes to religion, psychologists just think of religion as a specific category of thoughts and feelings, which is to say thoughts and feelings about what we might consider religious matters. So rituals, gods, moral issues to some extent, um, religious groups um, and things like this. Well, it's that time, folks. It's time for us to talk about microdosing. Microdose gummies deliver perfect entry-level doses of THC that help you feel just the right amount of good. Microdosing can help you get into a relaxed, focused zone easier and stay there longer. It has benefits for workout recovery, sleep, anxiety relief, boosting creativity, and even pain relief. You know, Jared, I have a really good friend of mine who saw that I was taking microdose gummies and she said, can I try some? And so I gave her some of the sativa strand and she said it has made such a difference for her at work and just in general, just feeling more alert and more focused. And it's quite amazing. So get 30% off your first order plus free shipping today at microdose.com. Promo code normal people. That's one word. It's available nationwide. That's microdose.com. Promo code normal people for 30% off and free shipping. Microdose.com. Promo code normal people. You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Well, welcome to the podcast, Jonathan. It's great to have you. And thanks for having me. Absolutely. So we just want to start with some of your spiritual story and how did you end up in the roles that you're in now? Because it's not often that we have someone who's in academics studying religion somewhat detached, but also then a parish priest. So how did you end up there? Yeah, so I, I had no real intention to, to become a parish priest in, in the traditional sense. I was ordained uh, to be a priest in 2015, and at that time, I was a postdoc at the Institute for Cognitive and Evolutionary Anthropology at Oxford, having trained while I was a postdoc there as well. But I was always just going to be an academic, the, with ministry, as it were, on the side, in an unpaid capacity at some church nearby to the university. Um, but then uh, my wife and I, we had a, a baby, and we wanted to move closer to her family down south uh, in the south of England. And a few weeks after we arrived in a little 
um, medieval town called Chichester, we got a message saying, oh, you know, this job has come up. And it's three very, very rural village churches. The total population of the four villages I serve is about 1,300 people. So that's the size we're talking about. And there are these three tiny churches with, you know, about 20 people each um, at most on a Sunday morning. Uh, but one of these churches is where my wife's family are buried. And she was baptized there uh, as a teenager. Her mother grew up in one of the villages in question. So we have this sort of close familial connection to this part of the world. And so I felt like I, I just had to throw my hat in the ring. So I called the bishop and I said to him, I I'm not really interested in the job because frankly, you couldn't pay me enough to leave my current job to take this up. But uh, bishops being very persuasive, he managed to trick me into taking up the job. Uh, but fortunately, uh, I've managed to maintain an academic position as well. The universities have been very flexible with the fact that I now spend most of my time doing pastoral ministry. Wow, that's that's kind of, I think, a whole podcast in itself. But I want to take a turn because before we started, we were talking, you, you called it like uh, inside baseball. We were using terms like the evolutionary psychology of religion and the cognitive science of religion and what are the similarities and differences. But I'm going to back up and just ask, how do scientists study religion? Like what's in what's involved? How do you even think about that from a scientific perspective? At the most basic level, there's a sense in which how scientists study religion is how scientists study everything else, which is by by observation. And there there's a kind of there's a kind of misunderstanding about I think psychology in general that it's somehow completely impossible to study because a lot of the things we're interested in are are subjective or directly observable. But of course, the same thing is true for particle physicists, right? So no one can see atoms. No one can see quarks. No one can see gravitational waves. But we figure out ways to observe their effects and make inferences about their existence and their properties. And the same is true for, for psychologists more broadly. So we psychologists study thoughts and feelings um, broadly construed. And thoughts and feelings are not you know physical objects that you can look at unless you're a particular kind of, of philosopher who thinks that all they are, are are patterns in brain activity. But even patterns in brain activity are not directly observable. We have to take um, electrical measurements or blood flow measurements from your brain to observe them and make inferences about what's going on in the brain. So we're doing a lot of indirect observation and, and inferences based on our indirect observations in more or less the same way that particle physicists do. Now, when it comes to religion, uh, we, psychologists just think of religion as a specific category of thoughts and feelings, which is to say thoughts and feelings about what we might consider religious matters. So rituals, gods, you know, moral issues to some extent, um, religious groups and things like this. And it's not different to us anyway, it's not different from the way we study thoughts and feelings about political beliefs or attitudes and groupings or about you know our, our feelings towards other human beings like personal relationships like friendships and marriages and things like this uh, so it's in that in that sense the psychology of religion is just uh, a normal branch of psychology I think it is understandable for people to then say wait a second but are you trying to study God and the short answer to that question is is no right psychologists aren't interested in gods as such or in in God with a capital G if you like we don't get to study God or gods or angels because we can't bring them into a lab and give them a questionnaire or put them in front of a computer and give them a cognitive task. All we can do is study the human side of religion and we and we can remain agnostic about whether there's any other side, right? So whether there's a divine side or not. So my colleagues, some of them are religious, some of them have perfectly orthodox Christian beliefs, and others are are aggressive atheists, and most are kind of somewhere in between. 
right? They're more or less indifferent or agnostic about the truth of the religious beliefs that they're studying. What they're interested in is the human side of things, the the, the beliefs themselves, rather than the objects of those beliefs. So, yeah, that that hits on something I think our, our listeners would be very in tune to. It's not about science doesn't prove or disprove God, right? I mean, that's the simplest way of putting it. It it what we're talking about is describing people's experiences. I think describing is is one activity that scientists do. I think where where some religious people get a little bit worried is when um, scientists like myself and my colleagues also claim to to explain uh, religious beliefs. We want to know why people hold the beliefs they do, or or how come people have the experiences that they have and claim to have, and that can happen at various levels. So we can ask, for example, you know whether or not there is something going in the brain that produces religious beliefs and experiences. We can ask about the ways in which uh, one's upbringing or life experiences of various kinds lead to religious beliefs and experiences. Mm-hmm. We can ask questions about whether or not there are various psychological needs that are fulfilled by by religious beliefs so that those needs make it more likely that you develop religious beliefs of various kinds. Uh, we can also ask developmental questions, so how it is that that religious beliefs uh, change and develop over time, uh, from childhood all the way to, to, to the end of life. Uh, and then we can take one step further back and ask evolutionary questions uh, about whether or not there is something about the way our brains uh, and our minds evolved uh, to, to be able to produce what, what seems to be culturally universal beliefs and practices of a certain sort, uh, which are, you know, beliefs about gods and souls, to some extent beliefs about the afterlife, and also behaviors that, that revolve around these beliefs, uh, most notably rituals of various kinds and perhaps sacrificial rituals in particular. Okay. So when you ask someone, for example, just like a normal person in Christianity, why do you believe in God? Well, Jesus spoke to me. And your job is to try to understand why they think Jesus spoke to them. Yes, the job is to try to understand why they think Jesus spoke to them. But it's also to understand uh, the experience itself. So say, say, say we take for granted that they have a vivid experience of Jesus speaking to them. So our question will be, okay, what is it about the human mind that makes it possible for them to have this experience? In the same way that when we say, uh, I look at an apple and I say that I have the experience of seeing a red apple, uh, you can ask the question, well, what is it about the human mind that allows us to see red apples, right? So a neuroscientist might say, well, you know, we have rods and cones in our eyeballs and, you know, here's, here's where color processing happens in the brain. Even if there was a red, a red apple in the world, um, there's still an additional question of how it is that our brain can perceive that red apple. And the same goes for, for, for religious experiences. So say we assume that God exists and can speak to people, that still raises the question of how it is that our brains function so that this is possible in the first place. So and that's the kind of positive interpretation, right? So that, that assumes that, um, that God exists, that assumes that the apple exists. But you don't have to assume that apples or God exists, right? You can remain agnostic about that and say, okay, look, you know, here's what the brain is doing when people say they're, 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 they're seeing red apples. Um, and that's a perfectly reasonable way to, to function. I want to ask a, a more philosophical question about this because the way we're talking about it, I think there is still a very common way of thinking about God that maybe classically we would call it the God of the gap. 
stops. So uh, for a lot of people, it's it's God explains some of these mysteries that we have. And so I think, like you talked about, the threat can be, well, if we can explain everything through science, that's why often in my tradition, we would have pitted uh, science against God. It's almost like they were two methods for the same thing. They're both trying to explain how the world works. And you can choose the Christian way of explaining the way the world works or, or the scientific way the world works. But if they're not opposed, how would you see those differently where we can we can do both of those things that science can perfectly, expo- not perfectly, but can explain these things and there isn't a lot of remainder left. Like, but no, whenever we took look at all the, the facts and we do all these experiments and things, we kind of have a decent okay grasp at how the world works and we don't need God to explain that. I think it's hard for people to get around like, okay, well then why the God? Like the duality? Thing? How to get around the duality of it? Yeah, okay, I mean, because yeah. I think there are ways and, and this is getting a little bit more into your personal story, which I'll get to in a minute. I'm going to spring that question on you after this one. But <laughs> before we get there, just more philosophically, how do we how do we overcome a binary that I think doesn't have to be a binary, but has been the case, at least in my tradition? Sure. Uh, first, uh, on, on your reticence to, to say that science can perfectly explain something. I mean, I understand the reticence, right? But but I think the, the reticence might come from either a theological place or, or a kind of philosophy of science place. And I think when it comes from a philosophy of science place, that's perfectly reasonable. But I don't know if we have theological reasons to suppose that science couldn't perfectly explain all like empirical regularities. So I'm going to set aside miracles for a moment and we can come back to that if you would like to. But I, like, I think I, I don't know if there are uh, sound theological reasons to suppose that that's science couldn't just explain all empirical regularities. And I, I say theological uh, quite narrowly, by which I mean, you know, what we believe about God. So what is the Christian doctrine of God? I've always felt that there there is something heretical, maybe, about the idea that there is causal competition between God and finite causes, uh, because it supposes that God is something like a finite cause, right? Like an object in the universe that applies, for example, physical force in the world or, or something like this. For centuries and centuries and centuries, at least since Gregory of Nyssa, if not even incipiently in St. Paul, and certainly by the time you get to St. Thomas Aquinas, you have this idea very strongly that God is not a thing in the world, and therefore doesn't cause things to happen in the way that other finite objects cause things to happen. And so there can just be no causal competition. And if there can be no causal competition, then there can be no explanatory competition to the extent that explanation is about the identification of causes. So how how Thomists, how uh, lots of Roman Catholics and to some extent uh, non-Roman Catholic philosophers and theologians who buy more or less the scheme uh, constructed by Thomas Aquinas in the Middle Ages, what we do is we say what God explains is not the things that happen in the world. What God explains is the existence of things in the first place. Not in the first place temporally, but in the first place like principally. And also uh, God explains the the fact that we have causal powers um, at all. And then all the rest of the work is done by thinking about and talking about finite causal powers. So, So in that sense, God is at a different level of explanation, um, if you like. And and that's not an epistemic claim, right? It's not a claim about knowledge. It's a claim about, about the nature of God. God is just not an object in the world. You know, the world does not comprise uh, human beings, billiard balls, platonic um, laws of nature, and God. You can't add God to the sort of furniture of the universe. Um, and to that, and, and if that's true, then there's no sense in thinking about God and other objects as as, in, as being a competition. Um, the, the great philosopher
philosopher, the great English Dominican friar and philosopher Herbert McCabe um, used to like to say, look, we never ask the question, why does the kettle boil? Is it because of the fire under the kettle or is it because of God? Uh, and yet we seem to think that that question is reasonable when it comes to you know evolution or the Big Bang or something. But uh, just in the same way that we never ask the question, why does the kettle boil? Is it because of God or because of the fire? Uh, then it makes no sense also to ask questions about uh, competitive questions about the Big Bang and evolution and other kinds of sort of uh, interesting scientific controversies. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. You know, Pete, I've been pretty emotional this week and I was trying to reflect on why that was. And it turns out, you know, my best friend from college just died. My mom's been in the hospital and I just haven't taken the time to reflect and process all of that. And it's been coming out in all these wonky ways. And that's exactly what therapy can help with. That's really been my experience with therapy as well. I've benefited tremendously from therapy. And I think lately I've been able to get to the point of why. It's learning to look at your situation more as an observer from the outside instead of just reacting to things, just thinking about it and processing the information. I find a lot of the problems become more manageable that way. And that's what therapy does for me. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and it's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash BNP today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash BNP. Shout out to Claritin for supporting this episode and providing us with samples. You know, folks, I've had allergies my whole life and I never knew what to do with them. I didn't even know that I had allergies. But anyway, one day I went to the doctor several years ago and I said, listen, I keep having a stuffed nose and it's just my throat hurts and it's horrible. And he says, have you tried Claritin D? And I said, no, I haven't. And he said, you have to. See, luckily for those of us who live with the symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin clear with Claritin D. This double action combination of prescriptive strength allergy medicine and the best decongestant available relieves sneezing, a runny nose, itchy and watery eyes, an itchy nose and throat, and sinus congestion and pressure with ease. You know, I've been taking Claritin D for my allergies for about 15 years, and it's been an absolute life changer. I can go for hikes without my eyes watering like a fountain. I can speak without feeling like a frog has jumped into my throat, and my nose isn't stuffed all the time. Ready to live life as if you don't have allergies, it's time to live Claritin Clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin Clear. Use as directed. Before you go on, I think I have a, uh, this story of going through Exodus and getting into trouble when I was a kid because I pointed out, you know, there, I guess there's this, there's this way of reading the Bible in my tradition that says the most supernatural reading of the Bible is the correct one. And by that, they mean that God causes things directly as an object of, you know, in basically what you're saying is not the case historically in Christian tradition. And I think of Exodus 14 when you make the suggestion that maybe the Red Sea was was split by a strong east wind 
maybe not directly the which hand is what of God, the Bible says. which is exactly what it says in Exodus 14, 21, that God caused it through a strong east wind. But if you said that, I remember saying that in my in my church and they basically it was like heresy. Like you've been, you've been duped by this liberal agenda to think that God couldn't just push back the, I'm like, no, it literally just says that in the Bible itself. Because again, I think there is something to this antagonism that maybe comes, you know, the, in the, the enlightenment and in post enlightenment, definitely in the 20th century here in America, where there's this antagonism between competing narratives of creation. And one is where God directly does something with God's hands in some physical imagination of things mm-hmm. or evolution and those are competing and so i like what you're saying that those historically in the, in the history of christian tradition not only not competitive but in fact somewhat heretical to think that god does things mm-hmm. physically in the world in the way that we might or again in my tradition that would have been assumed so jonathan just following on what jared just said could you explain the parting of the red sea According to how you understand God as not a being alongside of other beings, but the ground of being, you know, the, the, that, that which makes existence possible. Because, I mean, here, here's, here's the way that I think some people would try to bring it together, which I think you're not saying. Yeah, it's an east wind, but God caused the east wind, like, like manipulated nature or something to cause the east wind. I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, I think you're saying something different. Yeah, I I think this business of God being a kind of like big and powerful quasi-humanoid agent making decisions, it just strikes me as a bit odd and and also contrary to to sort of historic Christian views about what God is like, which is quite kind of strongly anti-anthropomorphic, but but with this kind of like beautiful incarnational theology at the end of it, right? Like there Christianity has always held two views of God uh which which seem inconsistent. But the fact that it seems inconsistent is, is in some ways its glory, which is that we, we have a very, very strong sense of of divine transcendence. God is nothing like any other object in the world, not being an object at all, while at the same time humbling God's self to become one among other objects in the incarnation. And you you detract in some ways from the power of the incarnational theology if you think that God is a bit like human being, a bit like a human being already anyway by nature. And so then suddenly the gap in, in the incarnation is quite small. And and so so because I don't, I just don't have a kind of, well, you know, like once upon a time, uh, God decides to do something and then causes one finite thing to happen. Like, I don't have that view of God. In some ways, the question just doesn't really make that much sense to me. Well, can, can I ask this question then on that? Because we talked about it a little bit beforehand, and I think it, it fits here. Then what is the relationship? How useful is science in in theological thinking? And we've been doing a lot of this around here at the Bible for all people more, you know, as we learn more about quantum mechanics and the physics of things, and how does that affect our theology? And so what? how do you think about that? relationship between science and theology and how useful is one to the other? Yeah, I've changed my mind about this a, a lot over the last 10 years or so. But I mostly think, I'm, most days when I wake up in the morning, I think that science has remarkably little to to say to theologians. But I want to qualify that in two ways. The, one of the things that Christians, Jews, and Muslims have in common is that we have a very a very sort of high view of divine mystery, right? So God is that which we, we know not how to speak. God is ineffable. God is transcendent. But where we part company, Christians, Jews, and Muslims, uh, where Christians part 
company from Jews and Muslims in a certain way is that in particular, so I come from a Muslim country and it's quite well known around the world that, that it is haram to depict things in heaven. And, and there's sort of iconoclastic streak in Judaism and Christianity as well, but it's perhaps strongest in, in Islam. Now, so, so how we characterize the difference is that um, Jews and Muslims are more reticent to say things about God because they're likely to be wrong, right? Because God is ineffable and mysterious. Whereas the Christian solution to the problem of divine mystery is to say as much as possible, even though most of it is going to be nonsense. Uh, and that's sort of interesting strategy, I think, right? Where where we try to, to use as much speech, either literal or metaphorical or analogical, but always knowing at a kind of meta level that all our words are straw. And I think if you take that seriously, then sure, right? Read some interesting popular science book about the Big Bang or about quantum theory or about neuroscience and, and riff on that and come up with some like interesting creative um, theology that you know will be uh, will be wrong, but is nevertheless interesting and a kind of creative intellectual exercise that is a kind of worship, right? But as long as you don't take it seriously, as long as you don't think that we are articulating truths about God, then in that sense, I've no, we have nothing to worry about. We're, we're just having a bit of sort of finite, slightly infantile theological fun. So, so on that level, you know, science is very useful because it provides fodder for creative, innovative riffing uh, about, about God. The other thing to be said about this, I think, is that very often our, our theology theological claims, even our very serious theological claims that we want people to take seriously and literally, come with various assumptions about the world that can be observed, right? What scientists might call empirical assumptions. Um, so we make assumptions about how humans behave or how churches function or, oh, so here's a, a topical thing for, for the US at the moment. We make assumptions about, you know, whether or not fetuses can feel pain or something like that. And those are questions that are amenable to scientific investigation. And to the extent that our theological theories, empirical assumptions, assumptions, then science can definitely play a role by checking those empirical assumptions. We can say, wait a second, you are assuming such and such about fetuses, or you're assuming such and such about the generosity of Christians, or you're assuming such and such about the age of the earth or something like this. Uh, but those are all straightforward questions of fact, which we can investigate scientifically. Now, that's not going to be all theological questions. Some theological questions just don't make any empirical assumptions, in which case then science plays a very limited role. And, and because the kind of theology I'm mostly interested in is quite, um, I suppose, basic or fundamental theology. So the doctrine of God, the doctrine of the incarnation, um, Eucharistic uh, theology and sacramental theology more broadly, because that's my theological world. I tend to think that the sciences have very little to say about those kinds of things, which are uh, in some ways kind of more fruitful for, for me to turn to sort of the philosophical literature than the scientific one. I'm going to learn more about the nature of God, if you like, by reading Aristotle than, uh, than reading the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology. Well, th this raises a, a question, and, and it's not really necessarily one that I fret over, but I can imagine people listening here having a question, something along the following. It sounds like an I gotcha question, but I think it's a legitimate question people would ask. If our theologizing is, and I love the phrase riffing, it's sort of like jazz, we're making it up as we go along, right? So yeah. if, if theology is an infantile riffing because we're dealing with an infinite creator that we can't comprehend right why isn't it why isn't it also riffing 
to say that God is being or God is the ground of all existence and that the incarnation is a legitimate theological category. I think to some extent it is, right? So the, the things, the language we use, like what the incarnation is, for example, has changed over, over the centuries. The language we use over how to make sense of the Eucharist has changed over the centuries. And the same goes for, for how we think about the divine attributes or about the doctrine of creation. Uh, but then the doctrine of Trinity itself, the, the incarnation nation itself the commitment to the idea that the universe is created itself, that is basic to the Christian faith in a way that I think is in some ways a kind of brute uh, sociological fact about what it means to belong to a particular tradition. Now, that's not to say that you can't question it, right? You can you can, you can can ask the question, well, you know, why assume that the universe is created? Or or why assume that, that God was incarnate as a human being? Or why assume that Christ is present in the Eucharist? But I think when you do that, then there's a sense in which you just kind of don't belong to the tradition. Well, if you come to, to a, a, an answer, that's different from the traditions answer that you just don't belong to the tradition anymore and for lots of people that's okay and then and uh, you know you, you just sort of move on and for other people it's not okay and so then you have this question about what you do when you have these sorts of questions and and doubts in your mind are you happy to 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 take it as given that that what it means to be a Christian is to belong to a particular tradition first and then uh, for the beliefs to come secondarily or whether or not you're the kind of person who, who needs to flip that around uh, to say that the, the beliefs are condition are the condition for belonging to the tradition and I think you know like I happen to be the sort of person who takes for granted that what comes first is belonging to the tradition and, and what that means sometimes uh, in the case of the Christian tradition is to have a few beliefs that are just given uh, and then you can riff on those uh, but once uh, once you give up the beliefs, then you just don't belong to the tradition anymore, uh, which, which may or may not be fine for you emotionally and socially. Say a little bit more about that, because I think one thing that I'd keep doing in this conversation is waffling between individual personal experiences of the divine and then this the tradition and being part of a community, both now but also throughout the the history of the tradition and trying to go back and forth between i guess what from your perspective from the scientific perspective are there different uh processes or is it a different sub part of the field to talk about religion from this sociological and communal experience perspective versus how we might study individual experiences of the divine Oh yeah, sure. Uh, so psychologists mostly study individuals. Our level of analysis is is of the individual, or or at most of the kind of small group, right? So the dyad, for example, which is two people, or you know, a, a group of three or four people. To the extent that we study groups that are larger than that, what we're actually studying is how individuals perceive the groups and their relationships to their groups. But of course, you don't have to be a psychologist, right? So you could be a sociologist um, or historian, in which case you might be studying large groups and how the groups as groups behave or have behaved in history. You might study institutions which are a kind of group. And so so broadly speaking, different people do these different kinds of work uh, focus on different levels of analysis. Uh, but occasionally we meet one another at conferences like the American Academy of Religion and, and try to make sense of how to put all these puzzle pieces together, the individual level and the, the social level and the institutional level more specifically, because you know all these things interact with, with one another. I, I should say though about traditions that I think uh, we make a state if we think that the only kinds of traditions that exist are are religious traditions I mean obviously there are there are cultural and and sort of national traditions right but but also you know the scientific enterprise itself has a history which is to say that it is a tradition um, we do science a particular way and science makes particular assumptions and those assumptions are sometimes questioned but very rarely. And when they are questioned, it sometimes leads to crises in science. So, so for example, 
you know, we we take for granted that our empirical observations can tell us something about the world as it really is. And when people raise doubts about the relationship between our observable experiences, our observations, and reality, then it leads people to be skeptical about even science. There, it's important to recognize that all of us belong to various traditions. We don't get to choose to not belong to a tradition. All we get to choose is which traditions we belong to, and then how to make sense of them, and how to, to put the different traditions to which we belong together in a kind of coherent way. Yeah, I asked that question because I think what you were saying, just at a very practical level, this sense, I'm just thinking of a lot of our listeners, and this is the place I was in maybe 10 or 15 years ago, where my faith was built on my personal experience with Jesus, let's say. You know, that was growing up in a charismatic uh, tradition that kind of me and Jesus, you have to have this divine mystical experience with the Spirit. And that's sort of the basis of your faith. Nothing can shake your faith if, as long as you have that to hold on to, a memory of it or a reoccurring experience with the Spirit as an individual. And then the the challenge for me became when my, my beliefs started to shift it seemed to shift everything. Like there was nothing that I could rest on. And so then to find this tradition, like you're talking about belonging first, allowed for space for changing beliefs. And I just think there's this interesting interplay between the individual experience of religion and then the communal experience of religion. And they do overlap as an individual. They've, I've, I've found the value of both of those things, which I think historically for me, I wouldn't have even considered the one without, you know, well, Actually, I would have been very anti-tradition. Yeah, so I think you're right that, that you you have to hold sort of both simultaneously, right? That there's something important about an individual's experience of whatever, and, and we'll get to the, to whatever in, in a moment, and also the the collective experience of the tradition. Uh, so, but on on the note of an individual's experience, I think we have quite a narrow, like intuitively narrow view of what counts as a religious experience, right? So, in in some traditions, perhaps yours. Uh, so, so for context, I'm now a priest in the Church of England, which in the US you. Would call an Episcopalian, but on, on the very, very Catholic end of the spectrum. But but when I first became a Christian as a teenager, I was converted by evangelical Methodists, and then for five or six years, mostly went to a, a sort of Pentecostal church. So, so I'm very familiar with, with the, the prioritization of a particular kind of experience, which is, as you describe, a sort of an experience of, uh, on one hand, a personal relationship with Jesus, and on the other hand, a kind of ecstatic experience in which you kind of are caught up in an experience of worship. But so but I think as as kind of valuable and interesting as those two kinds of experiences are, my, my worry about focusing on those is that it then leads us to ignore lots of experiences that we might think of as mundane, but 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 I hope they aren't really mundane. So experiences, for example, of, of gratitude, of, of gratitude not to a particular individual, but kind of, as it were, gratitude in general, a gratitude that's looking for, for someone to be grateful toward, right? Or a feeling of awe, for example, that is kind of slightly nebulous and then you the, the job is to figure out like where to locate how to attribute this this feeling of awe or or, or C.S. Lewis used to 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 write about sort of feelings of of homesickness right of of kind of only partial belonging to to the world as we know it now or or maybe these days in 21st century um we have feelings of moral outrage and a sense of grave injustice actually C.S. Lewis writes about this too right he writes about this kind of innate sense that 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 there is unfairness in the world right and and so I think a lot of these 
these feelings that we think of not at all in religious terms. There's no real reason for at least religious people to think of those in theological terms, to say, wait a second, these, what you might think of as mundane experiences about the world, allude to something, point at something, might lead us somewhere, might lead us to our knees in, in worship. You know, no, no more or no less than the feeling of being in a personal relationship with Jesus or being caught up in, in sort of rapture when, when listening to particular kinds of worship music, right? Why not broaden our sense of what counts as a religious experience? A calling is a powerful thing. It's a very strong belief that there is something bigger for you. It's about who you are and where you're going in life. You may be in college, you may be halfway through a career, but you want something different. There's a place for you at Union Presbyterian Seminary, where students are prepared for a call to ministry. At Union, you will find a diverse community. You'll find students from different denominations and professors who will listen to you and challenge you. You'll find people who help you find your own path. You'll find a school where financial realities matter. Union offers generous financial aid, and it meets you where you are with three different platforms for learning, residential, online, and hybrid. You'll find a world-class faculty who will invest in you, a community long after you graduate that supports you and equips you for service and for leadership. Safwat Marzuk, who has been on the podcast here on The Bible for All People, is a faculty at Union Presbyterian Seminary and is slated to write one of our upcoming commentaries. It's no secret, if you're a listener to the podcast, how much Pete and I have relied on our seminary education and how much that has shaped our view of the world and all of our work here at the Bible for Normal People. It's your call. Respond with Union Presbyterian Seminary. To learn more, go to upsem.edu or email admissions at upsem.edu. Did you know Fast Growing Trees is the biggest online nursery in the U.S. with more than 10,000 different kinds of plants and over 2 million happy customers in the U.S.? They have everything you could possibly want, like fruit trees, palm trees, evergreens, houseplants, and so much more. Whatever you're interested in, they have it for you. Find the perfect fit for your climate and space. Fast Growing Trees makes it easy to order online, and your plants are shipped directly to your door in one to two days. And along with that, Their 30-day Alive and Thrive guarantee is amazing. They offer free plant consultation forever. We got our bushes in, and you can tell I don't know what I'm talking about because I just call them bushes, but we got them in last night. And Fast Growing Trees knows what they're called. Exactly. That's the whole point. It comes with this placard that tells you exactly what to do like you were in fifth grade, which is the exact instruction level that I needed. And it was very easy to follow. We loved the process. This spring, they have their best deals online up to half off on select plants and other deals. And listeners to our show get an additional 15% off their first purchase when using the code NORMALPEOPLE at checkout. That's an additional 15% off at FastGrowingTrees.com using the code NORMALPEOPLE at checkout. FastGrowingTrees.com, code NORMALPEOPLE. Offer is valid for a limited time. Terms and conditions may apply. Okay, all this is triggering a question for me that, again, I can hear people especially on social media, as we discuss some of these things. I happen to really appreciate the language of experience when talking about, let's say, the religious life. And I'd like you to comment on a common response to that kind of an assertion, namely, well, experience is subjective, but I'm interested in truth, and that's objective. Could you riff on that and and what your thoughts are about that kind of a 
duality? Sure. There's a sense in which no scientist would say that, right? Because all of science is predicated on observation and observation like just has a subjective component, right? Which is to say you see things with your eyes, right? Uh, and and the thing that you see is subjective. Now, of course, we have measurement and what measurement allows us to do uh, is, is to compare our subjective experiences. It permits intersubjective comparison, right? And confirmation. Now, whether or not it gets to objectivity, right? A lot of people think that, that measurement gets us objectivity uh, it's not totally obvious how it does that right like as far as i can i can tell what what a measure does is it allows us to standardize observations which are which are inherently subjective phenomena and inherently subjective um, activity so but but of course we're interested in truth right and and when when scientists say they're interested in truth this is very closely tied to what we can observe uh what is what is empirical uh and and therefore uh, at least partially subjective to a scientist there's no kind of contradiction between subjectivity and truth because truth is accessible only uh, by by experience subjectively quite well you know all experience being being subjective uh, in that sense e- even though scientific tools permit as i say intersubjective comparison and and confirmation so that's the kind of like i think what what a scientist would say and i think what that reminds us then right that is that the the quest for truth is and should always be a collective one a social one so uh so if if i'm right uh to say that what what scientists how a scientist accesses the truth is by experience, which is by its nature subjective, and then adds to that um, scientific tools, for example, measures, um, which then permit intersubjective uh, confirmation um, and comparison. Then I think that's a model for pursuing truth in general, which is uh, which is not to denigrate individual experience, uh, but to, if you like, compare and check it all the time uh, with with other people who are seeking the same truth. And, th- and that's why I think uh, that religion is is kind of almost always a social enterprise. And that almost inevitably institutions arise uh, when when people start gathering together, having particular kinds of experiences, and try to puzzle around them and try to make sense of these experiences. And so, so you can have this sort of analogous situation where you have a scientific community um, and you have religious communities. And what both of those communities are trying to do is to make sense of their experiences, either by making more observations, uh, and this is more true, I suppose, in the sciences than in religious groups, or by theorizing, which happens both uh, among religious people and among professional scientists. We don't call our theological views theories a lot, but you know, they're they're structurally, semantically and subjectively quite similar to scientific theories. They are they're just, you know, these structures, articulated structures for making sense of our experience. I've been thinking a lot about truth over the years. And I think that was a, a huge aha for me that you've just articulated maybe even better than I ever have, which is I always think of it as, you know, truth seemed to be this thing out there. It, it was very platonic for me in my tradition growing up, that there is a set of facts out there just having to be grasped. And instead, thinking about what, what the precarious conclusion I came to is, truth is, a, is the conclusions we've come to when we use the right tools and the right process as a community. And that's, it's a, it's a little, it's more social, it's more communal, and it's more subjective. And it puts the emphasis on the process so that what you're talking about, the tools, the measures are the things that, you know, truth is just the conclusion of what comes out when we put these uh, experiences on a conveyor belt and they go through a particular process. What comes out the other side is what we're calling truth. And that's, 
subject to change if we run the same experiences through that and maybe tweak the measurements and, and maybe, you know, uh, we calibrate it based on other things we've learned and now we do it again and the conclusion might be a little different and now that's the truth of things. I think it's almost hard for me to have a mental model of that because I think I was so ingrained with a particular view of truth that had it be objective out there and easy to grasp if we, you know, in this almost intuitive sense rather than seeing science and theorizing whether it's religiously or scientifically as that's the process of truth making. Right, yeah, and I think that's that's one very reasonable way to make sense of, for example, the history of science, right? It's like, you know, once upon a time, it was reasonable to believe that the, the sun revolved around the earth or something like this. And then certainly by Descartes' time, that would no longer have been reasonable to believe to be true. And so, and so it goes, right? So and, and in Descartes' time, it was reasonable to believe that, you know, space and time are, are fixed entities. And by Einstein's time, it was no longer reasonable to believe that that's true. And one way of describing this is to say that the truths have changed. Um, I think that's not an unreasonable way to talk Talk. Uh, but I think, you know, if if you have listeners who want to be a bit more kind of conservative about what truth is with a capital T, I think that's okay too, right? So, so you know, it, we, we can maintain the idea, right? The kind of what you describe as the platonic idea that there is truth with a capital T out there, that there, there is just the way things are. Uh, and we're all just sort of trying to grasp at them, uh, at these truths, uh, more or less fallibly. And the truths themselves don't change, right? But our beliefs about them and what's the most reasonable account of the truth uh, that we have, that does change. And in both cases, whether or not you want to, to, to want to say that the truths themselves change or whether you want to maintain that the truths themselves don't change, I think in both cases, we have to admit that this grasping for the truth is going to be a kind of fallible and provisional and changing and and also right fundamentally social intersubjective activity. And this is true both in the sciences um, as well as, as in any sort of religious tradition. Well, Jonathan, I'm, I'm very conscious of the time here. And I, I'd like to ask you one last question. And again, this is... I think taking this down maybe a couple of notches. But again, I'm thinking of, you know, the normal people that we try to communicate with and and what they might be asking at this at this point. Back to the objective subjective thing that oh yeah, experience is subjective, but we're interested in objective truth and the source of that objective truth is guess what? The Bible. How, how would you help someone process that kind of a claim? What would you say to put on your Anglican priest hat, right? And and how would you talk to someone about maybe I don't want to prejudice it, but the problems with that claim, right? Uh, so so you know, as as you will have discerned, I'm sort of obsessed with the social, right, with kind of collective activity. So I think what what I would do is to is to show the person that the Bible is itself a collective product. Right, it's it. It belongs to a tradition. It belongs to several traditions. It took a lot of people to put it together. Right, it took even more people than that to then translate the thing and then to you know bind it in a hardcover with like red letters for Jesus's words or whatever. And then you know it ends up in your on your bookshelves. And then for the, the same reason, even reading the Bible is a collective activity, whether or not you are reading the Bible in a church or reading Bible um, during your private devotional time in your bedroom, because you may be an individual reading the Bible, but the Bible that you are reading and the aids which allow you to read the Bible in front of you is itself a collective activity. You know, you you did not collect the papyri, right? You did not translate. You did not try to do the paleography to read the the script. You did not translate the thing. You did not write the critical editions. Um, you did not. You certainly didn't bind the book. And so, to that extent, you are never alone when you are reading the Bible. It is it is always and inescapably a collective activity. Uh, and if that's true, right?
right? If that's true, then all that that means is that the the production and consumption of the Bible is 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 a phenomenon that belongs to a tradition, right? The tradition of the people um, involved in in putting it together until this evening when you're reading it in your in your bedroom by yourself. And so then the relationship that you have with the Bible can't just you, you can no longer pretend that it's, you know, that you're absorbing truths directly from, from some supernatural source, right? Is that you are collaborating with all these people, um, some of whom are alive and some of whom are long dead in making sense, uh, of the tradition to which you all belong, which is a tradition, which is a tradition that produced, uh, these scriptures and also which canonized them, right? I, I like to say that the Christian view of the Bible and of Christians and their relationship is not that Christians are the people of the book. That's how other people describe us. Uh, and in particular, that's how Muslims described Christians in, in you know, in as a way of praising us, right? As a way of saying that that Christians are okay, and that's great. Uh, but it's also a mistake. It's not the case that Christians are are the people of the book or a people of the book. It's exactly the other way around. The book, the Bible, the the canons that we have. And I say canons in plural because we have slightly different Bibles, if you like, across slightly different Christian traditions. The Bible is is the book of the people, of this people, of the people of God, if you like, of the church. And and so so there there still the church comes before the Bible. It is the church that put the Bible together, the church that canonized it. You know, we hope by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and guided by God. But nevertheless, right, the church is the agent here. And so, so reading the Bible is always just this social and traditioned uh, phenomenon. And therefore, the pursuit of truth by reading the Bible is also then a social and traditioned phenomenon. Okay, well, listen, Jonathan, uh, you've given me a lot to think about, Jared, a lot to think about. This is fascinating and it's deep, and we just want to thank you for taking your time. You're a busy guy and, you know, staying up well with this is afternoon for you so you're over across the pond but just for taking the time to be with us to explain i think some difficult concepts but i think at the end of the day extremely important concepts for all of us as we think about the religious life so thank you very much for taking the time thanks so much for having me and i'm very sorry that i didn't say very much about psychology uh, even though you know like i i'm supposed to be a psychologist i think you wear a few hats and that's fine <laughs> all right thanks jonathan you just made it through another entire episode of The Bible for Normal People. Well done to you, and well done to everyone who supports us by rating the podcast, leaving us a review, or telling others about our show. We are especially grateful for our producers group who support us over on Patreon. They are the reason we are able to keep bringing podcasts and other content to you. So a big thanks to Logan Jansen, Matt Sutton, Darlene Sinclair, Ryan Morrison, Heidi Brandau, Claire Patterson, Tyson Alex. Alexander, Doug Bannister, Kathleen Palmer, and Abigail Reeves. If you would like to help support the podcast, head over to patreon.com slash the Bible for Normal People, where for as little as $3 a month, you can receive bonus material, be part of an online community, get course discounts, and much more. We couldn't do what we do without your support. This episode was brought to you by the Bible for Normal People team, Brittany Prescott, Savannah Locke, Stephanie Spate, Tessa Stoltz, Nick Striegel, Haley Warren, Jessica Shaw, and Natalie Wyand. Mm-hmm.